and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Best We Have, The American Negro Academy. Around the turn of the 20th century, African Americans faced profound challenges. Economic exploitation, enforced segregation, and lynchings all came in the wake of the end of Reconstruction in the South, and black people throughout the country struggled against racism and inequality. A strange historical moment, you might think, to form a learned society, but that's exactly what a few dozen men, and they were all men, we'll come back to that later, did under the leadership of Alexander Crummel. This luminary of Africana thought, now an old man in 1896, described the prospective American Negro Academy in the following terms. It should be composed of, say, 50 colored scholars, the best we have, inclusive of real thoughtful reading men who have done something, exclusive of all mere talkers and screamers. It first met in March of 1897, with Crummel as president and none other than W.E.B. Du Bois as vice president. The goals of the ANA were ambitious. This organization would promote works of merit by black authors, aid youths of genius, construct an archive of literary and historical texts as well as artwork, and publish occasional papers along with an annual journal. Sadly, almost none of this happened. Over three decades of existence, the ANA never reached its full membership, made only a late and partial attempt at assembling that archive, and published far less than originally envisioned, putting out only 22 of those occasional papers and no book series or regular journal. The ANA had difficulty collecting dues, held sparsely attended meetings, and got little attention in the press. In part, this was owing to the fact that Crummel, an inspirational leader, died almost as soon as the Academy was born. He was succeeded by Du Bois, which sounds quite promising until you realize how busy he was with his academic and writing career. The ANA languished under his stewardship before passing to its third and most successful president, Archibald Grimke. He was an active leader, maybe too active when you consider that he wrote about a third of the papers put out by the Academy while he was in charge. When it came to be felt that the ANA was becoming more like a private club for Grimke and his associates, he was ousted in 1919, in favor of John W. Cromwell. In the following year, the reins passed to Arthur Schomburg. Though these were outstanding scholars, the ANA did not progress well as an organization under their leadership. During the Grimke years, the group had already fallen well short of Crummel's original vision, but that was a boom time compared to the final eight years. Critics said that it was managing to put out only one cheap pamphlet every two or three years, and pronounced it a fizzle. After it met for the last time in 1928, about the best you could say about the Academy was that it had been a missed opportunity. The obvious question arises, why bother devoting an episode to this damp squib of an organization? Because the American Negro Academy included numerous thinkers who put forth interesting and important ideas. Though his name does not resonate today, like his two predecessors in the role of ANA president, Crummel and Du Bois, Archibald Grimke offered subtle reflections on the political tensions of his day, especially those within the black community. Two other leading black intellectuals of the 20th century, both involved with the ANA, were the sociologist and mathematician Kelly Miller and William H. Ferris, author of a remarkable book called The African Abroad. 
Collectively, the occasional papers put out by the organization also provide a rich portrait of scholarly activity and political commentary among African Americans of this period, or at least among one very particular group of African Americans. One of those papers was written in 1920 by the just-mentioned William Ferris. It is an encomium of Alexander Crummel, who is honored in the title of the piece as an Apostle of Negro Culture. Ferris explains here that Crummel set up the ANA because he was convinced that his race needed an educated gentry. It seemed at first that it would do for the Negro race what the French Academy did for France. Writing more than 20 years later, Ferris is still waging a rhetorical battle in favor of that sort of elite intellectual project and against Booker T. Washington's ideal of industrial education for blacks. Why, he asks, did they set up Yale and Harvard universities as the whites' ideal of education and Hampton and Tuskegee as the colored man's ideal? This gives us an insight into the motives for establishing the ANA in the first place. It was to offer a counterweight to Tuskegee, a selection of hand-picked scholars who could inspire other members of the race. This ambition was set forth in Occasional Paper No. 8, penned by William S. Scarborough in 1903. Entitled The Educated Negro and His Mission, Scarborough's piece said that black intellectuals were propagandists who promoted morality and learning. The race gains self-respect as it sees one of its own on higher planes. Scarborough echoed other critics of Washington in arguing that the Tuskegee approach was too simplistic. Black people are diverse and should be offered a correspondingly diverse range of educational options. To identify the individual's needs with those of the whole race, was, Scarborough said, not only radically unphilosophic, but morally wrong. Of course, the point about diversity implicitly allows that, for some black people, industrial education would be entirely appropriate. This might even be the right form of training for the vast majority, a demographic we might unkindly call the untalented nine-tenths. But Archibald Grimke offered an even more subtle analysis of the situation. In occasional paper number 11, published in 1908, he argued that the southern states were lagging behind the northern ones because they had never really given up the outmoded economic model of agriculture based on slave labor. During Reconstruction, slavery was reborn as serfdom, and the black population remained poorly educated. His recipe to fix the situation was to educate all southerners as much as possible, since modern industrialism attains its highest efficiency as a system of production in that society where popular education is best provided for. Notice here how Grimke is happy to instrumentalize education for its economic benefits, a position one might associate with Booker T. Washington, yet his conclusion leads toward the thought that all black people should be educated to the maximum extent possible. Thoughtful, sophisticated responses to Washington's Tuskegee model seem to have been characteristic of the ANA. Another good example is Kelly Miller, who expressed his sympathy for the less elite black population by saying, the masses have no faults, only misfortunes. The educated man and woman must devise some means and methods of reaching them just as they are. He expresses what we might call a pluralist position on the matter very clearly in his book, Out of the House of Bondage. For him, industrial and higher education are both necessary because they speak to the two sides of human nature. Each of us seeks individual fulfillment but each of us also plays a role in society and economic life. Miller calls these two goals, respectively, those of personality and instrumentality. 
And whereas the aim of industrial education is to develop man as an instrumentality, the chief end of the so-called liberal education is to develop man as a personality. Miller is suggesting here that higher education is valuable, not for its economic consequences or for any practical consequences at all, but as an end in itself. It seeks, as he puts it, to develop manhood, merely this and nothing more. And womanhood, too. Miller says that men are gradually beginning to realize that women are on the same footing, and therefore to offer them better educational opportunities. Later on in the book, Miller expresses his frustration with those who mock the poor black man reading a Greek grammar in a dingy cabin, a clear allusion to a favorite anecdote of Washington's, which he told to poke fun of the pretentious and useless studies pursued by many blacks. Miller comments acidly that such stories are intended to encourage blacks to aim as low as possible. In fact, he says, no one school, nor any single type of schools, is adequate to the wide circle of racial needs. Or, as he remarks elsewhere, all the movements are, let us hope, efficient, but no one is sufficient. The true race philosophy comprises all of these. Let's now return to Archibald Grimke's paper, analyzing the industrial backwardness of the South. In addition to popular education, he mentions another factor that maximizes economic efficiency. Participation of the masses in the business of government reaches its fullest and freest expression. Here, obviously, he alludes to the voter suppression that stopped black Southerners from participating in American democracy. Back in 1899, one of the first occasional papers by John L. Love was devoted to this problem. Love offered acute political analysis, for example, regarding the cunning system by which whites had found a way to exclude black voters without excluding uneducated white voters. But he also made a point of deeper philosophical significance, namely that stopping someone from voting has pervasive effects on their social and economic position more generally. Disenfranchisement is not only a way to gain unfair political advantage, but places those who are targeted in a kind of political and social limbo. In another of his ANA papers, Grimke takes up this same phenomenon. Here he posits that the American Negro is in the unusual position of being recognized as a citizen, but not allowed to exercise a citizen's rights. Blacks are thus, as he puts it in the title of this piece, a ballotless victim, confronted by an increasingly unified white population. For all their differences, white northerners and white southerners at least agree on being racist, and are therefore ready to restrict the political freedoms of the black population. In his analysis, political marginalization is inextricably linked to more tangible disadvantages, with the consequence that black children in 1913, when he is writing, have dimmer prospects even than their parents had. Nor are the pernicious effects limited to those felt by the obvious victims. In a point worthy of Socrates, Grimke adds that whites are harming themselves by doing injustice. In the South especially, so many resources are devoted to oppressing blacks that the region suffers from arrested development and a backward civilization, as well as moral bankruptcy. This is pretty strident stuff, though presented in measured, rigorous, and empirical prose, in keeping with Crummel's original declaration that the ANA should not be a place for mere talkers and screamers. Along the same lines, Grimke once rejected an overture from Du Bois to merge the ANA with his Niagara movement on the grounds that the ANA was a non-political organization. Indeed, some of the occasional papers are not overtly political at all, 
being devoted to such historical topics as the role played by a regiment of Haitian soldiers in the American Civil War, or inquiries into the status of the free Negro in the 19th century. The ambition that the ANA should create a historical archive is also relevant here, as is a related organization called the Negro Society for Historical Research, founded by Academy members John Bruce and Arthur Schomburg. These scholars were looking to the past to understand their own historical moment. For instance, Grimke sought to explain the high crime rate among blacks, not only in terms of unfair policing, but also the background economic conditions since Reconstruction. This age had been one in which blacks were more sinned against than sinning, with the high crime rate an inevitable result of limited opportunities and unfair treatment. A similar approach can be found in Grimke's occasional paper on the sex question and race segregation. Here he observes that under slavery, American men of the dominant race considered themselves to have literal ownership over women of the oppressed race. These attitudes persisted after abolition, so that neither the law nor public opinion valued the chastity of black women. In other words, they could be seduced or raped with impunity by white masters. Conversely, black men are separated from possessing white women by a high wall. The result is that, as he puts it, the men of the upper world enjoy practically exclusive possession of the women of that world, while the men of the lower world do not enjoy exclusive possession of the women of their world, but share this possession with the men of the upper world. This pervasive asymmetry has dire consequences for all four demographics. White men are brought into immorality. White women are shamed by the philandering of their men and take out their fury on black women. Black men are humiliated by their unequal sexual opportunities. And black women are the most victimized of all as a safe quarry for the white man's lust. While this certainly shows that Grimke sympathizes with black women's plight, his social and historical analysis can be read as depicting women as something like a commodity that should be shared fairly among men. Little wonder that the ANA never admitted female members and allowed only two addresses to the group by female speakers in its three decades of existence. Another still more ambitious application of history can be found in the work of William Ferris. Ferris was an archetypal ANA member, a thoughtful scholar mocked personally by Booker T. Washington for the fact that with all his learning, Ferris was forced to seek employment as a janitor or some other equally humble occupation. In 1970, a historian was still willing to describe him as an embarrassing illustration of the classical educated unemployed Negro. But Ferris's book, The African Abroad or His Evolution in Western Civilization, published in 1913, shows that his studies certainly did not go to waste. It presents a theory of history that is evidently inspired by the German philosopher G.W.F. Hegel, who is in fact named at one point. Ferris proceeds from the assumption that a divine plan is guiding history, so that in studying it, we should always seek to recognize God's presence. Echoing another philosopher, this time Thomas Hobbes, he explains that humanity has developed from an original brutish state of nature toward the evolution of higher spiritual qualities. The upshot of this development is the emergence of great men of thought. For Ferris, it is these figures, great thinkers and religious leaders and not men of action, who have been the real makers of the world's history. The main point of his book, or one of them, is to illustrate how this phenomenon has shown itself among black people, with certain rare outstanding individuals emerging as leaders and great minds. Among contemporaries, 
he acknowledges Du Bois as having attained this status, and again strikes a Hegelian note when he says that Du Bois's Niagara movement shows the surging up into the soul of the Negro of that imminent world spirit. He is far less enamored of Booker T. Washington, whom he calls a man of one idea, namely industrial education. Washington's viewpoint was limited by his own lack of elite education, which made him unable to throw upon the problems he discusses the light of the philosophy of history. This is not to say that Washington's one idea is a bad one, only that it is woefully partial. In another example of the pluralist position we found in Miller, Ferris argues that the correct answer to philosophical and political problems is usually a complex combination of several apparently antithetical solutions. Thus, if we ask whether materialism or idealism is true, the answer should be that both capture something correct, while each being incomplete. The history of human thought, he remarks, shows that there is an element of truth in all of these views, and that a true philosophy blends these scattered violet rays into the white light of truth. Ferris goes on to apply this Hegelian perspective to the debate between Washington and Du Bois. Since, he says, man is a metaphysical, religious, artistic, and moral being, as well as a physical being, both their approaches speak to real needs in the black community. Still, it's pretty clear that Ferris's sympathies lie much more with Du Bois than with Washington. We've already seen him complaining that Africans are offered Tuskegee, whereas whites are offered Harvard and Yale. That observation also appears in this book, amplified by the remark, the Negro is regarded as a being who is fit for nothing higher than being a beast of burden and a tiller of the soil. He blames the scarcity of truly outstanding black authors on the undue emphasis placed on industrial education, as well as the abduction of Africans from their native lands. If you think about great figures in literary history like Homer or Dante, he argues, you will see that their achievements are deeply rooted in a culture that goes back many generations. Without this cultural legacy to draw on, black people are unable to follow the dialectics of their own nature, with the result that their writing frequently lacks the note of individuality. Alongside his idea of cultural authenticity, Ferris introduces a contrast between being imitative and reflective. In general, he thinks that 999 men in every thousand allow others to do their thinking for them, they take their ideas ready-made from others, and that the Negro is especially given to imitation. This is why Washington has been so revered as a race leader. The white race accepts him while rejecting more radical and ambitious figures, and black people are just imitating the attitude of the dominant race. Du Bois would of course be an exemplar of the more radical and ambitious figure, which moves Ferris to this extraordinary remark, Ask any Negro if he thinks Du Bois has the key to the solution of the Negro problem. If he says no, he is an imitative being. If he says yes, he is a reflective being. So this is what Ferris is looking for, the combination of authenticity and individual reflection that makes for literary merit. We can see how this theory informs his critical judgments from his remarks on the poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was in fact another member of the ANA. Ferris says that Dunbar is a poet of genius when he writes authentically, with a voice reproducing the soul life of the plantation negro, but only a poet of high talent when he does not write in dialect and engages with modern issues. Ferris is weighing in here on a matter that has provoked a variety of opinions from literary critics and scholars. While Dunbar is widely acclaimed as one of the most influential poets in all of American history, his dialect poetry 
is sometimes viewed as problematic, even inauthentic, and as participating in a tradition of plantation nostalgia popularized by white writers like Joel Chandler Harris. After all, Dunbar was not even from the rural South. He hailed from Dayton, Ohio. One of his non-dialect poems, We Wear the Mask, is often recognized as a classic expression of the dualism in African-American identity identified by Du Bois as double consciousness. The poem begins, We wear the mask that grins and lies, it hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. Those critical of his dialect poetry often see it as being just such a mask, but we can take Ferris to be arguing against such views on the grounds that his best efforts in dialect poetry rather serve to unmask the beauty of blackness. Ferris's idea that Dunbar and other black authors were most interesting and worthwhile when they spoke with a recognizably black voice, writing as colored men and not as white men, calls to mind Du Bois's idea of the black gift in The Conservation of Races. It's open to debate whether the ANA in general embraced that ideal. In fact, Du Bois's paper was quite literally debated at the first meeting of the Academy. Wilson Moses, who we had the honor to interview earlier in this podcast series, has pointed to a tension in the organization's mission, writing that, on the one hand, there was pride in distinct racial accomplishment, but this went hand in hand with the desire to have that accomplishment accepted as part of the American picture. As is natural for any group of this size, various members took various views on the question of whether to integrate or withdraw from white society. Ultimately, William Ferris and John Bruce, two of the more significant figures associated with the ANA, became enthusiasts for Marcus Garvey's nationalist movement. But reading through the occasional papers and other works produced by ANA authors, one is struck by a current of pessimism that runs through these documents, leaving the impression that nationalism, integrationism, and all other strategies are doomed to fail. Already in 1899, Charles Cook contributed a paper which acknowledged the dim prospects for racial progress. Colonization projects at this point seemed unrealistic, yet given the ferocity of white racism in the United States, staying in the country seemed possible only by pursuing a course of meek submission. Yet the race riots that were a feature of that era suggested that black people were not willing to submit. Cook poses the stark question, shall I kneel down, as he weighs the equally unsatisfactory options of dangerous resistance and craven surrender. His conclusion is a poignant one. We are gathered here tonight as amateur historians and prophets to review the past and lay plans for the future. But let me quickly relieve myself of the charge of encouraging rash projects or empty theories I am proposing no vast schemes, I believe it useless to do so. Twenty years later, Grimke sounded even more defeatist, repeating his point that whites of the South and the North were united in the project of oppressing blacks, he predicted, we are to be forever exploited, forever treated as an alien race, allowed to live here in strict subordination and subjection to the white race. It wasn't all doom and gloom, though. A more optimistic note was struck by Kelly Miller, when he responded to the polemics of the racist Thomas Dixon Jr., author of the book The Klansman, which was later made into the infamous silent film Birth of a Nation. Dixon claimed that no amount of education would enable black people to catch up to the further evolved state already reached by the white race. Against this, Miller pointed out that all races go through periods of civilizational development. In the proud days of Aristotle, the ancestors of Newton and Shakespeare and Bacon could not count beyond the ten fingers. 
So who's to say that the black man would not contribute his quota of genius to enrich the blood of the world? According to its adherents, the ANA itself provided evidence in favor of this proposition. In his book, The African Abroad, Miller himself suggested that achievement by a few elite black men could improve the reputation of the whole race, since the world admires a hero. This can be seen as a rejoinder to Booker T. Washington's idea that whites would inevitably, if grudgingly, learn to treat black people better if they just made more money. For Miller, that goal could be achieved by building up intellectual capital rather than financial capital. It was a hypothesis that would be tested soon enough, as the famous Harlem Renaissance offered unprecedented evidence of black genius. Or perhaps not so unprecedented. Reacting to Alan Locke's book The New Negro, William Ferris argued that what Locke was describing was not really new, but just a continuation of the black excellence that had existed for decades. The ANA did not achieve all that it set out to do, but the activities it did manage and the other writings produced by its members showed that African-American intellectuals had been working at a high level ever since the late 1890s. If all the Academy's publications were put together, he said, the scholarship, philosophical analysis, sociological insight displayed would have startled the world and made as strong an impression as the essays on The New Negro. It's a fair point that Ferris makes, so before we move on, we want to dwell on the remarkable generation of black scholars who were active from the turn of the century down to the 1920s. For help with this, we'll be joined by an expert on this historical moment and the thinkers who gave it its distinctive flavor and piquancy. How apt then that our guest's name is Tommy Curry. You'll hear from him next time in what should be a spicy serving of the history of Africana philosophy. Mm -hmm.